Hey, good morning. My name is Dan Song, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, good to be together as we gather to worship, uh, as we have gathered to worship. We have the opportunity to learn from God's Word this morning. So if you do have a Bible, uh, turn to 1 Samuel 7. You can use the Pew Bibles. We want to start getting in the habit of, uh, if, you do have, if you don't have a Bible with you, we do have church Bibles in front of the chair Be Behind the chair in front of you, or underneath the chair in front of you. Man, I haven't used, I haven't said that in a long time. So you can grab one of those. If you're going to use one of those, it's on page 230 of the Church Bibles, or we also have the scripture um, projected on the screen for us this morning. If you don't already know by now, we are in the book of 1 Samuel, and we've been looking at how God has been faithful as the true king. Whether the people of God had kings or not, that God has always been their king and will continue to be their faithful king through and through. And we've seen that through this, these first six chapters. And just to kind of catch us up to speed and where we're at, maybe this is your first time or you've been with us, but we can easily forget where we are in the story. But remember, this book opens up in a lot of darkness. The word of God is absolutely rare in those days. The people of God did whatever they wanted that whatever was good in their own eyes, they did. And so there was, there was a lot of moral corruption, a lot of sin, a lot of injustice. And this was very much represented by God's own people, specifically the representatives of God's people, kind of like your pastors, the priests of God's people, Eli. Eli and his sons who were supposed to be the model of what it looked like to live a faithful life, they completely failed. And we saw that early on in chapters 1, 2, and 3. But then what happens? God raises up in the midst of darkness a woman who's barren, Hannah. And Hannah has a child, Samuel. And Samuel raises him up, or God raises up Samuel to be able to be the prophet for God's people so that God's word is no longer rare, but God's word is regular in the life of Israel. And so that is huge. God has been faithful. He's raised up a people that would love God's word and hear it prophesied, that they would be able to be instructed. And that's where we left off in chapter 3. But then we took a little detour and we saw how the Ark of the Covenant comes into the picture. And the Ark of the Covenant was God's presence for His people. And what happens? It goes on tour. It, stay, it begins with God's people. They lose it because of their sin and them thinking that they could manipulate and control God. And so the Ark of the Covenant goes into exile. It's held captive. And the Philistines have it. And then in Philistia, it goes from one city to the next to the next. And eventually they realize, we don't want this thing here. God is too holy. He's too great. He is second to none. And so they basically send it back to Israel, to Beth Shemesh. Do you remember that last week? And in Beth Shemesh, they recognize God's people that he is truly holy, and they don't want it either. They've been struck down. Seventy people of God's, of the priests have been struck down because of how they mishandled God and his holiness. And so they send it to this little city called Kiriath-Jerim. And that's where we left off last week. And what we're going to see here in this story is what happens when God, or when We've seen a picture of how God's people act in their sin, in their folly, unfaithfulness. 
and how God in his mercy can transform and change the people of God to love him. And that's where we're going to see a complete transformation of God's people in this story. So let me read this story, follow along with me, and then we'll dig into what we can learn from this story in chapter 7. Let's read together. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mitzvah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mitzvah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mitzvah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mitzvah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord and and." Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a burnt offering, whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that, that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mitzpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel. From Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. There was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mitzpah, and he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel, and he built there an altar to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that this is the word of the Lord. Not my words that I will speak for the next 20, 30 minutes, but your words alone. So help me to be faithful, to speak from what you have taught, so that, Lord, we might be transformed by your words alone. Do that good work, Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to share a little story about this 14-year-old boy named Caleb Pruitt. It was a story that I heard and read uh, on On the Road with Steve Hartman. Maybe some of you might have watched this about a month ago. But this 14-year-old boy named Caleb Pruitt has Down syndrome. And one of the things that they highlighted was how he hated to exercise. Anyone can kind of 
uh, re- resonate with that. He hated to he hated to exercise. The only exercise he would do would live would be to lift up his thumb so he could play games on his Xbox and his Wii. He hated exercising when it came to swimming. He could barely swim from one side to the other. He hated to bike because he actually needed help when he went biking. But he also hated running. The, when he ever, whenever he saw a treadmill, it was, so, it was such a novelty to him to just see that thing and see that thing without him ever touching a treadmill or going outside to run. But all of that changed for this young 14-year-old Caleb Pruitt when he met another 20-year-old man named Chris Nickich. You see, Chris Nickich also has Down syndrome. But when Caleb met Chris for the first time, he fell in love with him. He wanted to become best friends with him. He idolized him. He wanted to become best buds. And the reason was because Chris had done something that no other, no other person with Down syndrome had ever done. And that was finish the Ironman. A 140-mile race, biking, swimming, and running. And so when Kayla met Chris, he wanted to become just like him. And what was more amazing than him, Caleb, or Chris finishing the Ironman was that Chris actually took Caleb under his wings. He spent time with him. He mentored him. But most importantly, he actually inspired him to exercise. And what came about from his transformation with Chris was that he ended up becoming the youngest to ever finish a triathlon. How did this transformation happen with a 14-year-old boy with Down syndrome who hated exercising, which I can relate with, to finishing his first triathlon as the youngest boy with Down syndrome? Well, we see it here clearly if you watch the story, if you read it, or if you've heard it now. It was Chris. Chris Nickich brought about this transformation in this young 14-year-old boy from someone who hated exercising to finishing a triathlon. Now here in the story that we just read, there is this amazing transformation for the people of God. If you've been following with us for the last three chapters, we've seen how unfaithful the people of God have been. How they thought they could manipulate and control God like a lucky rabbit's foot. How they were so prideful that they could just treat God nonchalantly when it came to the Ark of the Covenant. There are so many ways in which we saw their pride and their arrogance when it came to their relationship with the Lord. But here in the story that we just read, everything has changed. There is this amazing transformation for the people of God where no longer is a manipulation, but humility and reliance on God. No longer is it pride, but it's repentance and confession of sin. And no longer are they slaughtered and defeated. They actually, we see them defeat their enemies because they cry out to God. It's night and day in how much they have grown in the Lord. 
And this is the beautiful picture we see here in chapter 7 that reminds us that God is the one who brings about the change in his people. In the same way Chris brought about transformation in Caleb's life, God is the only one who can bring about transformation in our lives as well. And so that's what we're going to see this morning, is that the new mercies of God are the things that allow us to be changed and transformed. It's his mercies. And so the question for us this morning is, what are those factors we see of God's mercy that allows for transformation and change in our lives? What are those factors? And in this story, I see four. I originally saw five, but I spared you and was merciful to you this morning. And we're going to four. But four things, four gold nuggets that we can actually look and evaluate in our lives are these things of God's mercy actually impacting my life so that I might change and become more like Christ. So let's, let's dig into this and look at the story. The first thing we see here is enduring patience. Enduring patience. The reason I say this is it took Israel 20 years to finally come to a place of repentance. 20 years. Can you imagine the patience it took Samuel to preach, to teach, to exhort, to prophesy, to shepherd the people of God for 20 years before they finally came around and realized their sin and brokenness to come before the Lord? 20 years. Imagine what they experienced. I mean, we looked at that in the last three chapters. They saw God strike down Dagon, the Philistine God. They saw and heard how God executed him by cutting off his head and his hands. They heard of how God's power brought about all these plagues and suffering to their enemies. They heard of God's holiness and how the Philistines wanted the Ark of the Covenant out of their presence. And they even saw how God was so holy that even God's people were struck down with judgment when they mishandled God. And then what do we hear? What do we read? It wasn't until 20 years later after that did God's people finally come around to understanding their place before God. What does it look like for us to have patience? Enduring patience. Yesterday, I ordered something on Amazon, and we have Prime, right? And so when I ordered it on a Saturday, I said, well, I'll give them Sunday, so I should get it on Tuesday. But when I clicked on it, guess what it said? I won't get it till Thursday. And I was so distraught, more so not even distraught, I, I felt like I was wronged. That it was unjust that I wasn't getting it on Tuesday, but had to wait two more days to get it on Thursday. This is how we operate. We think that we should get things immediately. Instant gratification. Our kids were talking about something yesterday, and we wanted to find out how, what percentage of Asians there were in this entire population of the world. How many were kids in this entire population? And immediately I was able to take out my phone and just Google it and get the answer. Do you remember as a kid, you would have to look up encyclopedia and find it? And even then, like I had 1984 and was using it back in 1989. Nowadays, we can get things so quickly that we feel like it is unjust if we have to wait. And yet in God's economy, what we see is, is that we are called to endure 
patiently for true change to happen. And that was the case for God's people. 20 years Samuel waited patiently. He still preached. He still shepherded. He cared for God's flock even when there was no change. But that is what God calls us to. When we see God's mercy, there is patience that we need to endure. What does that look like when it comes to our children? What does it look like to wait patiently and endure for our spouse, for our parents? I met a couple this past week, and each time I have met them over the years, every single time the question or the prayer request is, please pray that my parents come to know Jesus. That enduring patience, that long waiting and enduring. And it reminded me and encouraged, I encouraged them to say, my mom waited 35 years before her mom, my grandmother, came to know Christ. What does it look like to endure patiently, longing for the church to change and be transformed as we think about all the different abuses happening in the church? Do we have the long game at hand or do we desire quick, immediate change right away? Maybe it's ourselves. I think we're hardest on ourselves, aren't we, when it comes to change. Why do I still struggle with this sin? Why am I so impatient with my kids? Why do I still have this anger issue? Why do I covet? Why am I so jealous? Why do I backtalk? In all of these ways, how can we have this sort of enduring patience to know this is the economy of God, not Amazon Prime? God calls us to wait, and we need to be reminded of God's mercies. Though it takes time, though it takes many years, this is true lasting change and transformation. It's through lo slow, enduring process. The second thing we see is not only enduring patience, but it's genuine repentance. Genuine repentance. You see at the end of verse 2, what does, what does it record? And all, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. You see, there's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. They felt guilty. The people of God were sorrowful. They were remorseful. They were even guilt-ridden. But it didn't lead to true repentance until 20 years after. And what do we see? Samuel comes finally, and he declares to all God's people, Gather all Israel and Mitzpah, the city, and I will pray to the Lord for you. Sorry, no, that's not the part. Verse 3. Verse 3, well, I don't know why I read verse 5. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you are returning to the Lord with all your heart. You see that word returning? That word returning is the same word for repentance. You see, repentance isn't just feeling remorseful or guilt-ridden. Repentance is, two, is a two-way road. There's two parts to it. One is to turn away from your idols. And it's to turn towards God and to return to Him. That's what repentance is. And here the people of God finally get to that place where they repent. They turn from their Asheroths. They, they turn back or turn away from their bowels, from their foreign gods, and they turn to God, the only one. And that's what we, we, we read in verse 4. So the people of Israel put away their bowels and the Asheroth, and they serve the Lord only. God is a jealous God. 
We are married to him and he has every right to be jealous when we are in a covenantal relationship with him. He deserves our only affection with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. He longs for us to be able to worship him only, not with other gods. Right? And we looked at that a few weeks ago. What is an idol? It is anything other than God that you find your significance, your power, your meaning, your identity from. What are those things? And for, for the Israelites, they lived in a Canaanite culture. And do you know Baal and Ashtaroth? What they signified was all of these sexual innuendos. So imagine when the people of God came together to worship, guess what they did? The place of worship was not only the temple, but it was also a brothel. It was a place where liturgy and orgy happened in the same place. This is what religion and worship looked like for God's people. No wonder it took them 20 years to return to the Lord. When you're talking about Baal and Ashtaroth with all these sexual practices, it was good. It felt good. It was pleasing to the eye. And no wonder for these people of God, they mixed all of these different idols together. And we do the exact same thing. And what God calls us to here is, are we willing to repent, to turn away, to crush our bowels and asteroids, and to turn to the Lord and say, you deserve my all, because you are second to none, as we see, that he is holy. And because we are in relationship with him, he deserves everything. Dale Davis, in his commentary for Samuel, he said this, The one who truly repents always knows his only hope rests in the divine mercy of God. Do you see that? It's when we've experienced the kindness of God do we experience, do we repent and experience the mercy of God as well. This is what change, this is how change happens. It isn't just time and enduring patience, but it is also repentance to be able to focus our eyes on him alone and not worship other things. The third thing that we see here is not only one of enduring patience, not only of genuine repentance, but third, utter desperation. Utter desperation. You see, it's a beautiful picture of where the people of God are at. They've all gathered at mitzvah, right? And there is this covenantal renewal happening as they worship God only. There's repentance. We have sinned against the Lord. And we see them pour water and give it to the Lord. We see them fast. But as they're worshiping together at mitzvah, the Philistines get word of this. And we don't know why, but maybe they think, well, they're the most vulnerable as they worship. Or maybe as they thought, they, they misconstrued the event and they thought maybe the people of God were gathering together to attack the Philistines again. But for whatever reason, they hear that they've gathered at mitzvah and the Philistines want to go attack Israel. Now in other times where we saw in chapter 4, when Philistines attack Israel, How are the Israelites acting? They're cool. They're nonchalant. Why? Because they're resting on their own laurels. They're resting and they think that they can control God and bring the Ark of the Covenant to the battle and go, oh yeah, we got this. We can use God because if we bring God, he has to deliver for us, right? There was no panic. There was no terror or any sort of fear. But what do we read here? When the Philistines attack what do, we, what do we get in their description? 
They were afraid. The Israelites were terrified. For the first time, they recognize and they have this utter desperation and need to depend on God. And they cry out to God. And they also tell Samuel, cry out for us. We need God to deliver us. Not us deliver us from the enemies, but God needs to be the one that delivers us. And it's in those times, right, when we expect or when we don't expect hardship or attacks or suffering, aren't those the times that we actually grow? It's in those times where we experience hardship when we don't think it's coming that we are utterly dependent on the Lord because we have nothing otherwise. A scholar said this, sometimes a father may box us in, place us in a situation in which one by one, all our secondary helps and supports are taken from us in order that defenseless, we may lean on his mercy alone. More and more, God's people must walk in the way of desperation, prayer that is. Once we see this, we will no longer regard prayer as a pious cop-out, but as our only rational activity. You see that? It's when we are utterly desperate, utterly dependent on Yahweh, God. Will He answer us? Not maybe the situation in delivering us all the time, but He will draw near to us. We will experience His comfort and we will realize Yahweh is the only one who can save us as the Israelites did. They were utterly desperate. Do we find ourselves completely helpless? Do we find ourselves utterly dependent on the Lord? We don't like that, do we? Do we like being utterly desperate? No. Because that means we have to become absolutely vulnerable. And we don't like vulnerability. We want to act like we have everything together. We want to look strong. We want to look like we've got it. But actually, it's the opposite when it comes to our God and how he transforms us and makes us more like Christ, it's when we are utterly dependent, God comes and we experience truly his mercies. But the last thing we see here isn't only when we are utterly dependent and desperate, but lastly what we see here as we close is that we need constant reminders. That this is God's mercy for us in being able to be reminded constantly of God's faithfulness to us. And we see that here, right? What happens after God delivers Israel from the Philistines? What happens? Look at verse 12. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mitzpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer. For he said, till now the Lord has helped us. Now, you know, there's that song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. Here I raise my Ebenezer, and many times, like, no one knows what Ebenezer is. Like, it doesn't have to do with the Scrooge. Like, we rarely ever know. But here, Ebenezer literally just means stone of help. But here what Samuel does is he dedicates this stone and says, Till now the Lord has helped us. Meaning, this is a reminder for God's people that God has been faithful to us. The problem is we think we don't need those reminders, right? We think as soon as God delivers us or God helps us, we're like, okay, I got it. Now I can move forward. But what we see here in this story is Samuel immediately 
picks up this stone and calls it Ebenezer because until now the Lord has helped us. He has been faithful to us from the beginning up until now. And we need to be able to see that stone every day of our lives and know what this represents. God has delivered us from our enemies. God is faithful. He is merciful. And he will always look out for his people. And this is what this does for us. We need these constant reminders in our lives. Maybe it's anniversaries or different dates in your spiritual walk. But for whatever reason, we do it in our own, like, in our own lives, right? We do it with birthdays, with anniversaries, and whatnot. But how much more important or just as equally important it is for us to have anniversaries and dates that we remember of our spiritual walk with the Lord as well. Maybe for some of us, maybe we came to know the Lord as adults or later in our childhood. Do we have those dates set in our calendar to remind us of how God has been faithful? He has called me out of the depths of my sin and delivered me. Maybe it's your baptism. Children, if you're here right now and you've been baptized, ask your parents, what day did I get baptized? We should celebrate this every single year like my birthday. Why? Because it reminds us that we are His. We are part of God's family now. Nothing can ever take that away from us. We are forgiven. We are cleansed. We belong to Him. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ because we belong to Him. He is well pleased with us. How important is that to remember our baptism when we've been cleansed and renewed? We do that as a church. When we think about our building dedication in November, when we think about our particularization, when God called us to become this little body in the middle of St. Louis, to be able to be a church that is for our Lord and to see people come to know Christ and to be transformed. But you know what's most important? We do that every single week. This Sunday gathering is our Ebenezer. Do you know that? That we set the first day of the week apart to remember, till now, God has been faithful. Don't you need that? I need that every single week. Even this morning, I woke up and I, for whatever reason, there are days or there are Sundays where I come and I have no desire to come and worship and preach the Word of God. But as we confess our sins, as, you rem- as I'm reminded of, how, of God's forgiveness for me, As we sing songs of his faithfulness, I'm being reminded of who God is and what he has done for me in my failures from this past week. And I'm able to look at this stone called Sunday morning and be able to declare out loud, till now, God has been faithful. He calls us to worship him. (laughs) As holy as he is, we get to draw near to him. We're redeemed and cleansed of our sin and our brokenness. We get to be instructed by God's word. We get to fellowship at the table. These are these beautiful reminders of God's faithfulness. But here's the other flip side of Ebenezer. Do you know what Ebenezer was? Ebenezer was a place. Do you remember chapter 4? None of you probably remember. I forgot too. Ebenezer was where God's people utterly failed. That's when they brought out the ark and said, we can control God and manipulate God and use him for our own selves and for our own glory. 
you remember that? They brought it out in chapter 4 in Ebenezer's where they camped. And they brought, out, brought it out to fight the Philistines. And what happens? They get destroyed and demolished. It is their failure at the same time as God's faithfulness to remind them that even in their failure, in their sin, God is faithful. So it was just as much a reminder of God's faithfulness as it was of their failure and brokenness. And isn't that what this table is? Each week we gather together, we come to not only remember God's faithfulness, but also our brokenness. That he covers us with his blood. That we drink this cup that reminds us that our sins are forgiven. And though we fail every single week, Every single day, even though we have this pillar, this stone that says, till now God has been faithful, we know Monday through Saturday we will fail. But we come back and we're reminded God still loves me. He has forgiven me. And I can experience his mercy and his grace every single week. That is the cross. That is the table. It is our horrific, it is of our horrific, ugly, shameful sin all our folly, foolishness, our bows and our astroths. But it's also a reminder of our wonderful, beautiful Savior, of His love and His grace and His mercy for you and for me. What memorials, what reminders, what Ebenezer's has the Lord already put in your life that we need to pay attention to? Or maybe for others of us, we need to think about what are those that we need to be able to create new ones to be able to build into our lives so that we might have that constant reminder till now, till now, God has been faithful. And because he has been faithful, I can walk each day faithfully in confidence because of his faithfulness to us. As I close, I want to remind us of the story that I shared of Caleb and Chris. Now, when Steve Hartman interviews Caleb, the 14-year-old boy who finished a triathlon, he asked him this question. Do you want to be like Chris? And Caleb, with this huge smile on his face, said, yes. And Steve Hartman says, you know what? I think you are like Chris. And when Caleb heard those words, there was so much joy and contentment and excitement in his face. And there was so much excitement. He said, what? Oh my God, yes. That's how happy he was. It was the best compliment he had ever received in his life. Brothers and sisters, church, that is the best compliment we can receive. Though we fail though we struggle, though we do not endure patiently, though we fail to repent, though we don't have constant Ebenezer's and reminders in our lives, God is faithful. Just as he defeated the enemies of the Philistines, he is the one who always fights for you and for me. And we need to remember that. It's not, it's not our own power to change our hearts, but it is God who has done it and he will continue to do it in our lives. We are becoming more like Christ. We are being transformed to become more like Him. And as we do, remember, till now, the Lord has helped us, and He is not finished with us yet. Let's pray.
Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful reminder that till now, from the beginning of time, you have helped us individually, as a church, as a people of God. And so, Lord, I pray that you would stir our hearts to be, to be reminded of your love for us, of your commitment to us, of your mercy for us, so that, Lord, we might even come to the table now, not defeated, not discouraged, but even with our faults and failures and our sins, to be able to hold our head up high, to know, Lord, that you have forgiven us and you desire to feed us and nourish us and strengthen us for the week ahead, so that as we are reminded of this memorial here at this table, that it would also not just be, be a memorial, but it would be our strengthening, our grace for us, a spiritual act of worship to be able to push us this day and this week to love you more all the days of our lives. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.